When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. My original idea for these great myths was to do them chronologically so that the next set of myths to come after Mesopotamia and Egypt was to be Hinduism. But it suddenly struck me that there is no reason to handle this material chronologically at all, and there is especially no reason to do it if it gives the impression that there is some sort of ultimate evolution in religious thinking that is going on in the world, where certain people of whatever faith can suddenly say, here is where the peak was reached, or some such thing. Rather, as in keeping with sort of the mantra that I found in choosing the myths and choosing the poems and choosing the other readings that I present here, I'm merely following my bias and following my passion and hoping that other podcasters, other writers, or other readers simply in choosing what they choose to listen to or read will also follow their bias and follow their passion and never for a moment imagine that they have arrived at some place of ultimate authority. And for that reason, for the next while, We'll be spending our time with the Celtic myths. I'll save a definition of what Celtic might mean for perhaps a future episode. But it's worth saying right at the beginning here that it's interesting that there's probably no real way to present Celtic mythology in any chronological way either. Certainly not in the way that I presented Egyptian mythology, the stories that I gave from there, where it was fairly easy to date the texts and the stories that I was presenting down to uh, a dynasty or a certain period in Egyptian history. Now, it will take me a while to get my bearings on this material again and where it all stands historically, but as far as I'm aware, What we're dealing with when we talk about Celtic mythology is actually Celtic literature. We're dealing with a literary phenomenon, something that was written down and preserved. And as far as I am aware, there none of what I am none of what I will be sharing here over the next month and more is a survival of some sort of pristine original. Everything that I will read will have been put into writing 
only after the Celtic peoples came into contact with and certainly converted to Christianity. So there will always be that sort of cloud hovering over it. And as far as I'm aware, that's also the case with Norse mythology. There's always this sense not only that uh, Christianity or a conquering culture, as it were, there's not only a sense of that conquering culture sort of hovering over and editing and influencing how the old stories were finally put into writing, but there's also a kind of mournful sense of an entire people putting down what they once believed in or once took seriously or once supported their civilizations and sort of looking back on it nostalgically. And for that reason, I wanted to just start with a good story, a good but fairly short but also fairly representative story from the Celtic myths. The Dream of Angus Angus was asleep one night when he saw something like a young girl coming towards the head of his bed. And she was the most beautiful woman in Eriu. He made to take her hand and draw her to his bed, but as he welcomed her, she vanished suddenly, and he did not know who had taken her from him. He remained in bed until the morning, but he was troubled in his mind. The form he had seen but not spoken to was making him ill. No food entered his mouth that day. He waited until evening, and then he saw a tympan in her hand, the sweetest ever, and she played for him until he fell asleep. Thus he was all night, and the next morning he ate nothing. A full year passed, and the girl continued to visit Angus, so that he fell in love with her, but he told no one. Then he fell sick, but no one knew what ailed him. The physicians of Eriu gathered, but could not discover what was wrong, so they sent for Fernier, Conn's physician, and Fernier came. He could tell from a man's face what the illness was, just as he could tell from the smoke that came from a house how many were sick inside. Fernier took Angus aside and said to him, No meeting this, but love in absence. You have divined my illness, said Angus. You have grown sick at heart, said Fernier, and you have not dared to tell anyone. It is true, said Angus. A young girl came to me. Her form was the most beautiful that I have ever seen, and her appearance was excellent. A tympan was in her hand, and she played for me each night. No matter, said Fernier. Love for her has seized you. We will send to Boand, your mother, that she may come and speak with you. They sent to Boan then, and she came. I was called to see this man, for a mysterious illness that has overcome him, said Fernier, and he told Boan what had happened. Let his mother tend to him, said Fernier, and let her search throughout Eriu until she finds the form that her son saw. The search was carried on for a year, but the like of the girl was not found, so Fernier was summoned again. No help has been found for him, said Boan. 
Then send for the Dagde, and let him come and speak with his son, said Ferny. The Dagde was sent for, and came, asking, Why have I been summoned? To advise your son, said Boan. It is right that you help him, for his death would be a pity. Love in absence has overcome him, and no help for it has been found. Why tell me, asked the Dagde, my knowledge is no greater than yours. Indeed it is, said Ferny, for you are the king of the She de Veriu. Send messengers to Bothe, for he is king of the seed of Mamu, and his knowledge spreads throughout Eriu. Messengers went to Bothe then, and they were welcomed. Bothe said, Welcome, people of the Dagde. It is that we have come for, they replied. Have you news? Bothe asked. We have. Angus, son of the Dagde, has been in love for two years, they replied. How is that? Bothe asked. He saw a young girl in his sleep, they said, but we do not know where in Eriu she is to be found. The Dagde asks that you search all Eriu for a girl of her form and appearance. That search will be made, said Bothe, and it will be carried on for a year, so that I may be sure of finding her. At the end of the year, both of his people went to him at his house in the Shi de Femun, and said, We made a circuit of Eriu, and we found a girl at Loch Bel Dracon in Kruetklich. Messengers were sent to the Dagde then. He welcomed them and said, Have you news? Good news. The girl of the form you described has been found, they said. Bothe has asked, that Angus return with us to see if he recognizes her as the girl he saw. Angus was taken in a chariot to the Sheed of Fumun then, and he was welcomed there. A great feast was prepared for him, and it lasted three days and three nights. After that, Bothva said to Angus, Let us go now to see if you recognize the girl. You may see her but it is not in my power to give her to you. They went on until they reached a lake, and there they saw three fifties of young girls, and Angus's girl was among them. The other girls were no taller than her shoulder. Each pair of them was linked by a silver chain, but Angus's girl wore a silver necklace, and her chain was of burnished gold. Do you recognize that girl? Bothe asked. Indeed, I do, Angus replied. I can do no more for you then, said Bothe. No matter, for she is the girl I saw. I cannot take her now. Who is she? Angus asked. I know her, of course. Ka'er Ibormeth, daughter of Ethel Anubayal, from Shid Umaun, in the province of Kanakta. After that, Angus and his people returned to their own land, and Bothe went with them to visit the Dagde and Boand at Brug in Mechoik. They told their news, how the girl's form and appearance were just as Angus had seen, and they told her name and those of her father and grandfather. A pity that we cannot get her, said the Dagde. What you should do is go to Aila and Maeve, for the girl is in their territory, 
said Bob. The dog day went to Canocta then, and three score chariots with him. They were welcomed by the king and queen there, and spent a week feasting and drinking. Why your journey? asked the king. There is a girl in your territory, said the dog day, with whom my son has fallen in love, and he has now fallen ill. I have come to see if you will give her to him. Who is she? Ailil asked. The daughter of Athel Anbuel, the Dagde replied. We do not have the power to give her to you, said Ailil and Maeve. Then the best thing would be to have the king of the Sheed called here, said the Dagde. Ailil's steward went with Ethel Anbuel and said, Ailil and Maeve require that you come back and speak with them. I will not come, Ethel said, and I will not give my daughter to the son of the Dagde. The steward repeated this to Alil, saying, He knows why he has been summoned, and he will not come. No matter, said Alil, for he will come, and the heads of his warriors with him. After that, Alil's household and the Dagde's people rose up against the sheet and destroyed it. They brought out three score heads and confined the king of Kurahu. Ailil said to Ethel Abnual, Give your daughter to the son of the Dagde. I cannot, he said, for her power is greater than mine. What great power does she have? Ailil asked. Being in the form of a bird each day of one year and in human form each day of the following year. Ethel said. Which year will she be in the shape of a bird? Ailil asked. It is not for me to reveal that, Ethel replied. Your head off, said Ailil, unless you tell us. I will conceal it no longer then, but will tell you, since you are so obstinate, said Ethel. Next Semain she will be in the form of a bird. She will be at Loch Bel Dracon, and beautiful birds will be seen with her three fifties of swans about her, and I will make ready for them. No matter that, said the Dagde, since I know the nature you have brought upon her. Peace and friendship were made among Ailil and Ethel and the Dagde then, and the Dagde bade them farewell, and went to his house, and told the news to his son. Go next Samhain to Loch Bel Dracon, he said, and call her to you there. Then Maroch went to Loch Bel Dracon, and there he saw the three fifties of white birds with silver chains and golden hair about their heads. Angus was in human form at the edge of the lake, and he called to the girl, saying, Come and speak with me, Ka'er. Who is calling to me? asked Ka'er. Angus is calling, he replied. I will come, she said, if you will promise me that I may return to the water. I promise that, he said. She went to him then. He put his arms round her, and they slept in the form of swans until they had circled the lake three times. Thus he kept his promise. They leapt in the form of two white birds and flew to Brug in Merk Ok, and there they sang until the people inside fell asleep for three days and three nights.
The girl remained with Angus after that. This is how the friendship between Elil and Maeve and the Macock arose, and this is why Angus took three hundred to the cattle raid of Kulnia. So there's so much there just in four or five pages that I wanted to mention a few things that were in this story that will come up again and again in future stories. And I guess for anyone familiar with these stories at all, the one thing that will come up again and again will be my difficulty in pronouncing the Celtic names, place names and character names, and I will do my best to pronounce them correctly and pronounce them consistently as best I can. But as to the story itself, it strikes me that there is, first of all, an immense romanticism to it, uh, this sort of lush and tragic and deeply felt idea of what love can be, romantic love can be, that you can waste away in sickness from having seen someone that you apparently love and not know who they are and to send half of the country and even the inhabitants of the other world to go and look for this person for you. There is that on the one hand, romantic love being a preoccupation which some might not consider to be a very masculine pursuit, but on the other hand, there is the military and the martial aspect to the story, which is also quite striking and comes upon us quite suddenly. And as it will do in many of the stories, there is the juxtaposition of both, of sort of romance and martial power. And neither are neither can be done away with, but neither can be put in the bottle and capped, as it were. Perhaps that's a way of, of these people of saying that these are the two most powerful influences in our lives, and perhaps that is still the case. And for that reason, uh, at least on the romantic side, and maybe even on the, the military side too, it's not surprising to realize that in, uh, in a thousand years or 600 years after some of these stories were, were written down, that Yeats could turn many of them into beautiful romantic poetry. There is also a, a sort of... There, there is as much attention given to the order of things, the sort of court etiquette of things, as there is to the main plot itself. You see in a sort of, almost as if it's a play of people being called on stage and, and being sent off stage, of people taking their entire retinue, almost out of a scene of Shakespeare, uh, taking their retinue to someone else's court and presenting themselves and going through the whole litany of what you should say before you get to the point. And in this case, it was to discover who this man's lover was or should be that he was dreaming of. There is always an immense amount of detail given 
to what we would call, I guess, subplots. And it's worth noting that, uh, at least in the, in the translation that I've read, the dream of Angus takes up about three quarters of a page. And his actual meeting of the swan maiden, his lover, also takes up about three quarters of a page. And the rest, to us, might seem to be filler, but to the people telling these stories, it clearly was not. It was part of what they took to be formulaic. It was almost maybe the, the sugar coating or the suspense in seeing how the story would work out. And in that sense, too, we can see that in the details of the names and the locations and the names and the landscape and uh, of the people that are visited, we can see a just by the fact that they aren't introduced fully that there is a huge world that the audience of these stories would have known well enough. And you would have sort, sort of have seen these people come on stage, you would have heard their names, and you would have known their backstory already. And indeed, the very last line of the story, which links this short story to the what might be called the great Irish epic of the cattle raid of Kulnia, it links it to that larger story itself in a way that the audience would have understood immediately. But to us, we need a footnote. And in my case, I need the Oxford Dictionary of Celtic Mythology by James MacKillop, which is one of the great reference books on my shelf I'm constantly looking at, and it is an incredible book. So there is this huge world, and on top of that, we see that what sort of effortlessly inhabits this huge world is something that I have always admired about the Celtic and the Norse myths, and which I've wanted to try to put into a book on its own to sort of try and top Ovid, if that's possible, and call it a Northern Metamorphoses. Because right here we see how casually and how maybe even expected it is that someone, a human being, or even someone in the other world can change their shape into that of an animal and then uh, go back to a human form after that. Uh, it's an incredible image that runs straight through all of these stories. And while it is very hard to excavate what their actual religious beliefs were, let alone what their uh, religious rituals may have been, I think that we can gather an awful lot about what, what that might have been by seeing how freely the characters in their myths are able to become animals or become human. Or indeed, in the case of the Sheed, the fairy hills as they're known, uh, how much how much and how easy the traffic is between human and animal and natural life. And that's, that was the other thing too, the Sheed, uh, where we have these, there are these areas in the landscape, as James MacKillop says in his Dictionary of Celtic Mythology. These are the round, flat-topped barrows, man-made 
sparrows that are seen in the landscape and which were then through the myths and I guess through folk tales as well and perhaps of people not realizing what they were originally for they become these gateways to the other world and you saw in the story there was a sheet of this place there was a sheet of that place we can almost imagine capital cities where where there would be a sheet here and a sheet there there were there was a deep belief in these entryways into the other world and in this story as well it was said it would happen on Samhain or on Halloween and that the uh, the openings or the ease of entrance into these places were linked to the uh, seasonal festivals and uh, holidays so that that is only a a hint as to where we will be going with all of this and I hope that this small story does serve as a good introduction to what will be coming over the next few months. So thank you for listening, and until next time. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.